Okay, I'm going to trust there's a big crowd in front of me because I can't see anything. Um, my name is Des Trainer, and I am from Ireland. That's the accent you're hearing. Uh, so that means it's likely you might not understand everything I say. Just wave or ask me to repeat it, and I'll do my best. So <clears throat> I'm here today with a pretty simple thesis, and that is that you find and maintain product market fit by having good customer conversations with the right people at the right time, in the right place, with the right questions, and then acting on the feedback accordingly. And we're going to break this down piece by piece. So we'll start with finding and maintaining product market fit. And for those of you uh, who are feel, if I do speed up at any point and you feel like you're missing stuff on the slides, I will be giving the slides away afterwards. So <clears throat> product market fit, I'm sure we, you've probably seen this definition like 50, 11 times at this stage. but. Uh, I like Mark Andreessen's one because it's uh, pretty simple. It has the, all the benefits of simplicity in that it's also not 100% tangible, but it, it, uh, it definitely covers the basis. It means being in a good market with a product that satisfies the market. But how do you know if your product's good or if it can satisfy the market or if the market appreciates it? Uh, and that's a tricky question. Like, you, know, you could argue good means that it's, you know, it's mobile, it's, it's easy to use, it's, you know, it has a high NPS score, it's a good MVP, There's lot, it's very usable, or it's beautiful looking, or it scores number one on Dribbble, or any of these various definitions of goodness. The danger with these is that most products that fail would also claim that they did all these things too. So uh, it's, it's a tricky one to work with. And um, some, some of the bar has shifted a little bit as well. Like it used to be the case that being easy to use was actually considered a bonus. These days, saying your product's easy to use is like a chef saying that his food is edible. It's not necessarily like, you know, it's, it's sort of table stakes, right? Um, but the inverse of this question is just as tricky, because we talk a lot about bloated products or products that have a lot of features that aren't necessarily useful. But equally, how do you know your product is bloated? And interestingly, I find this is actually an easier question to answer. So hands up here who has a product, by the way, or has worked on a product, right? So I am at the right conference. Cool. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, <clears throat> a good way to think about if your product is uh, bloated or not is, are people using the features we put into it, right? So, a very sort of simple product management 101 uh, way to look at that would be to sort of say, let's take uh, all the features we have and ask simply, what percentage of, user, of users are using them? And if you, have, if you hit traction early on, or you had any early success, typically that's, you know, it's going to look something like this. Most people are using what you built, and that's great. That means you've solved a pretty precise problem. You're satisfying the market of sorts. Unfortunately, like, that sort of success can be a lousy teacher. It lets you think you're somewhat infallible, that you can't put a foot wrong. So you're like, OK, I got it. I know the features to add. Let's go for it. So what you think you're doing as you grow a product is you think you're going to add like, calendars, or you're going to add time, tr time tracking. In this case, this is a mysterious project management tool. But what you think you're doing is you're adding all these features, like you're adding live chat, message tagging, project tagging. And in your head, there's this happy so song playing. And you're like, all the people are going to appreciate all the features I code. And uh, in reality, it doesn't work out so sweet. The reality is kind of a little bit more like this, which is we had product market fit, and then we had a load of shit no one wanted. <laughs> and, uh, and that can be dangerous, right? Uh, but even that's a somewhat optimistic case. And 
Why is it optimistic? Well, because the wiser that the bottom gets, it means the more bloat you have. It actually reduces the value of the first, say, four or five features here, because now they're like, they're like five tabs in the middle of a hunk of junk, whereas before they were pro pretty prominent features. So your reality is probably something a little bit more like this, and now you're really losing the plot. Um, as a side note, if you do one of these, very, very simple, and I highly recommend you do, if you do one of these evaluations of how your product's doing, uh, and you come out with something like this, it's a good sign that you're going to be disrupted. If you have a large feature set of which only a very, very small number of things are useful, uh, it's a good sign that someone can come in with those exact features, throw away all the other shit that you have to maintain and build and try to charge for in market, and they'll be like, hey, we just do the thing you actually want, and lo and behold, that's what we call disruption. Now, it's interesting when you, when you look at it like this, because I've never actually sat in a meeting that that where someone says this, hey, I've got a great idea. What about if we ship a bunch of junk that no one wants, right? I've never sat in those meetings at all. I have, conversely, been in meetings where it's like, <laughs> looks like we shipped a bunch of junk that no one wanted, and <laughs> there's a weird disconnect there, right? Uh, like it does happen, but it was, ne it was never the plan. So going back to this idea of like just measuring who's using your, your product, uh, an interesting way to think about this is just how many people are using each of my features and how often are they using it? It's very, again, these are like very, very simple metrics. Uh, if you know any SQL or if you have a developer who does, you'll pull this out pretty quickly. Just simply plot your features along here and you'll work out pretty quickly what, what the core of your product is, what the ancillary pieces are, and if you have any troublesome pieces. And that's quite valuable to be able to do because it lets you realize where you, where you need to have customer conversations, where you need to talk to people and work out what you're missing. It also helps you prioritize things like, in a case like this, if you can make you know, posting a message or posting a reply uh, better or easier, that will have an uh, order of magnitude more impact than, say, improving your SMS alerts because the amount of times it gets used by your customers, you know, it simply means that anyone who goes through that process will really benefit as opposed to incrementally improving something that barely anyone uses. A simple way to think about these things is this. You have a product core, which is going to be like your top right. And like for Twitter, that could be like tweeting or reading tweets. For Instagram, it could be posting uh, photos and looking at photos and liking photos. For like Basecamp or a time tracker, it's, you, know, you, you know what the core of the product is. It's OK to dissipate as it trails away. Obviously, you need to service more than one perfect user. So you will add some, f some features that don't resonate with absolutely everyone. You do have a problem if you've got a lot of stuff that's high into the left here. What you've you're tiptoeing there into like consulting wear, which is you have a small number of uh, users who are heavily dependent on this feature, and you can't kill it now. And that's a, tr that's a problem. So another way I think about product market fit is our most like you know post traction post launch is like are people using the stuff we built, um, and how do we know and how do we inform that? Well, that's the next part of the thesis. It's having customer conversations. So, if you recall the graph we just saw, we can have a feature that say is something like a reports feature in our project management tool, and we have options with this when we seek to when we want to talk about it. We can either try to increase the frequency of usage, that is, get people using it more, or we can increase the adoption of the feature, get more people using it. And that's a really interesting way to think about your features, because it really will inform your roadmap. What it lets you realize is that like, uh, shipping a feature means nothing. And 
it's definitely true that like, if you're an engineering-led or engineering-driven organization, there's a temptation to over-prioritize the value of shipping. And like, that's where we high-five, and that's where we celebrate and launch and all that. But usage is actually what you're shooting for here, not shipping. Code live on some Amazon box somewhere that no one ever touches and ever executes is not something to celebrate. There's zero value in an unused feature. And what's interesting here is it means you can actually increase the value of your product without actually changing your product just by increasing the usage, right? And that this is, like, how do you do this? Well, this is what you want to talk to customers about. So in, in short, like, what we're trying to do is get people using it, or sorry, get more people using it, or get people using it more. So if we have something like this reports feature, there's two different ways we want to go with this. If we want more people using it, we need to work out why certain people aren't using it, okay? And we're not looking for a spouse behavior. We're not looking for hypotheticals or conditionals. We're looking to, for the very, very simple facts of what is blocking you from doing this. So you might start off with a fact that like, a lot of users aren't using our reports feature. Cool. That much is a fact, and it's not open to dispute by your product manager or your designers or anything. So you go and research this, and you say, why? Well, the obvious why, and you, you'll hear variations of the phrase, I don't see the value in this. Uh, and things that sound like I don't see the value and actually will you know, map to it are, it's not important for us right now, it's too expensive, it's, uh, I haven't gotten around to it yet, it's someone else's job. These all translate to I don't see the value. If I thought it was valuable, I'd be doing it. Um, so why don't they see the value? Well, because they can't show it to their boss. All right, so you'll, you'll uncover these things as you talk. Well, why can't they show it to their boss? Well, it's because they can't get it in a good format to bring it to a meeting as PDF or Excel. Well, why can't they do that? Well, it turns out that our, report to, uh, our export tools aren't good enough. Well, why didn't we build better export tools? Oh, well, it actually turns out we have to improve our API. And it's like, OK, grand. Now we're sort of getting somewhere. These are barriers to adoption for our product. And that technique, which I'm sure you've heard a million times over, is obviously the five whys. But like, it's an important way to look at this. Now, a crucial point here is to not stop at the first user you talk to. Like, don't, you know, don't be like, all right, you've got it all. Hey, guys, I've solved the entire, our 10,000 users are all embodied by this one dude over here. You, know, you have to talk to more than one person, uh, which is why your actual map will look something more like this. No one uses reports. Well, there's four key reasons people don't use reports. And if we go deep on them, we'll start to uncover real reasons. And what comes out of this should be a ranked and, and hopefully resolvable set of barriers to adoption for a feature. So you ship this reports feature. Why isn't it being used? Well, I didn't understand the interface for generating reports. OK, so now, now we, can, we have different options here. We can try and communicate. Uh, we can try and educate. We can try and redesign. But now we have a way to actually solve this adoption that does not involve necessarily like longitudinal projects, once again. And you, you know, it could be like, I don't know how to get them in view mode. I don't understand it. It doesn't show on mobile. It just simply doesn't work for me or whatever. Um, and then, obviously, a lot of these are solvable purely by like, shifting the uh, perception of how they should work. So the solution does not always live in code. Sometimes you can actually just, you know, by having the conversations with customers, you'll work out, well, it's actually the problem here is, but, you know, it's actually in our customers' heads. Our product actually works, but they don't think it'll do what we think, what they, we know it will do for them, or they don't believe in the value that this is going to generate, so they haven't bothered playing around with it yet. And not all of that is changeable in design. Some of it's just changeable in, in like, customer communications. And to that end, like, customer conversations have two really good benefits. One, they inform the product changes you need to make to increase adoption, but sometimes they actually just cause an increase in adoption as well. Simply by talking to people about the value that, that they feel they should get, and you explain the actual value, you can close this perception gap. And a lot of this can, of, can often be about perception. So if we talk, we'll talk a little bit about perception. It's kind of a 
slightly high-level point, but um, one of my favorite stories of perception versus reality came from a speaker called Rory Sutherland, who told me a story about the British postal system. Basically, the British postal system delivered 98% of its first-class mail uh, within two working days. And they were like, that's not good enough. We need to do better. We're Britain. So they invested billions and nearly broke their organization trying to get it to 99. And it's interesting. Like, they weren't wrong. Like, they were here. And, you know, they were, you know, very, very passionate people who really wanted to be amazing. So they were chasing for here. And that's great. What's not great is if you asked anyone in Britain, what percentage of mail do you think arrives within two days? It wouldn't have been so great. It's actually more like 50%. So what the hell are you doing solving the 2% thing when the reality, or sorry, the perception of reality is way, way, way worse, right? The, surely if they just ran an advertising campaign saying, just FYI, here is the actual performance of our product, that would have massively increased things with no change to the system whatsoever. Instead, they spent two effing billion to try and fix this, right? Um, so it's interesting to think about this in your product. When you're sitting here looking at a situation where you have this, you have to ask, is the, is the problem that we're experiencing here one of reality? Is, is the product really broken? Or is it that we haven't set up our customers to win? We haven't set winning expectations. We haven't clarified the value. And, um, <clears throat> and one thing that I, you know, one sort of realization I certainly had in, in my career is that uh, a lot of people who are roughly my age, i.e., you know, early 30s-ish, um, uh, there was always a perception that if you build a great enough product, forget about everything. The customers will all just knock down your door and use it. And it's like, you know, you, you have to build many, many great products. And you're like, actually, that's not really fucking true, is it? You know, um, what you realize is that, like, you know, the value we offer versus the value potential customers see, create, if there's a gap there, it's a gap that's closed by marketing. Right? That's what product marketing does. Clearly communicates the gap between the reality of your offering and the customer's perception of the reality of your offering. Okay? In some cases, the value they see will be greater than the value you offer. Uh, that means you've done a really great job marketing, and we can all think of certain social networks that have done that. Um, so <clears throat> similarly, when, uh, when you close that gap, you have to be careful that when they're actually in your product, you're not creating another gap, which is, the gap of here's what we think we can charge you for, and here's what you're actually using. And that problem basically can repeat itself. And again, this is where customer conversations, either true, again, true two ways, just true clarifying the offering that you're actually making, or true informing your own company about the misperceptions or like the bad positioning or of these features or of these products that you're building, that's what you can close. So the sort of key takeaway for me there is that often, the biggest opportunities for improvement come in changing your customers' perceptions about your product rather than actually going back and rewriting the damn thing. Because rewriting can be pretty expensive, and it still won't necessarily solve it. Um, so we're saying you should talk to these customers. Well, you have to talk to the right customers. Never talk to everyone. Everyone, I guarantee you, every single one of you in this room has surveyed your entire user base. And that's brilliant. And you're asking questions like, how should we improve our onboarding? And you're mixing in a guy who signed up four and a half years ago with a guy who signed up yesterday. And you know, you've actually changed onboarding and your product four times since then. But you're throwing it all in together and leaving yourself a massive challenge of like munging through all this data. When you talk at your users, you're treating them like data points, pixels, page views. This is what we call them. 
They're actually people. And Mikael from Zendesk made this point yesterday. They're people. And when you understand that they're people, you realize that people are in different states of mind. For example, all these users fall into people who signed up yesterday, people who've used the reports feature a lot, and these guys over here have never used reports. So if you want to improve reports, who do you talk to? Well, the guys who signed up yesterday won't have a clue what to tell you, because they're, they're still struggling around with your onboarding or whatever. The guys who've never used it, they're not going to tell you how to improve it. They haven't even tried the damn thing. So it's obvious you only want to talk to active report users. Related to that, by the way, another danger you get when you take like, widespread feedback is you end up with a spouse behavior. You end up talking to one of these people who will give you an answer like, sure thing, Des, happy to give you feedback. I think the reports feature, I might use it if I had a way to restrict the date ranges and if I could then compare. And it's all this aspirational nonsense. Like, it, you, know, you can't listen to people who haven't, if you're trying to improve something, you can't listen to people who've never seen it. It makes no sense. It'd be like me turning around and saying, hey, I've got this new movie I'm working on. Can you give me some feedback? What are you going to say? You're going to say, show me the damn movie, right? Uh, and, and worse than a spouse is often aspirational behavior. You'll get a lot of this as well. Aspirational behavior is uh, things, people like saying things that, they're, like, that feel good to say. And we're coming up to January, so we're going to hear a lot of this. Okay. Uh, and like the version of that is, yeah, I really want to get organized. So if your tool tracker can help me do this, and I really want to improve the performance of my team, and it's all this future-facing, nice-to-say sort of stuff, but like it's not actually behavior. And like, aside from the holistic point of listening to the wrong people, uh, they're not going to spend money on this. Like just like you know, you know, you, unless your model is literally the gymnasium model of we'll char charge a big upfront fee in January, safe from the knowledge we'll never see you again. Uh, unless that's and like most of you are on recurring revenue models, so that's not going to work. Um, but also, you can do a lot of damage by giving the wrong message to the wrong people, because it actually degrades your relationship with them. In Ireland, we have this problem where on, on a day, so today's weather, by the way, is like pretty much, we call it Thursday in Ireland. Uh, we, you know, we, it, it, it doesn't have a hashtag. But, um, <laughs> but uh, when you get a really bad day, uh, which I'm like, you can, if, if this is a regular day, imagine what a really bad day for us is like. Uh, oftentimes, you'll show up for school, and the teacher will take, uh, take it upon himself to give out to everyone who's shown up. They're like, damn you guys, attendance really is not good enough. And I'm like, mate, who are you talking to? We're the people who showed up. You know, that is the danger of like, talking to the wrong people. Because I'm like, well, what's the point of showing up if I'm going to get the shit either way? I may as well just be at home in bed. At least that way I don't have to listen to it. You know? So like, the key point is, if you want to, you know, always make sure you're talking to the right people. If you want to talk, if you want to know what makes people upgrade, Talk to the people who upgraded. Ask them why they upgraded. If you want to make know what makes people do X, only talk to those who did X. And X can be like, hey, why did you add your teammates? And they're like, oh, well, it turns out that well, I had to assign this task. And we're like, got it. So we need to promote the reason that you did this is to assign tasks. So let's tell everyone else who's not adding their teammates that this is the reason to do it. Uh, Similarly, if you want to know why people canceled from your product, you should only be talking to people who canceled. In general, if you want to know why people don't do something, also only talk to people who haven't done it yet. So why haven't you used your ed editor? Talk to active users who aren't using the editor. Why aren't you using tags? Talk to active in your product users who aren't using tags. It's really important that you only talk to the right people. The feedback you get is so much more rich. But also the response rate 
uh, like whether it's like in-person conversations, phone calls, emails, whatever, they're way more likely to talk to you when it's, when it's a, the right message. Like if I reach out to this dude, Mr. in the front row, and I say, hey, I saw you at my presentation at the Lean Startup recently, you're like, oh shit, you obviously know who you're talking to here, Des, that's impressive. Whereas if I just say like, dear sir, I don't know if you did or did not see my presentation, you know, you're already clicking archive before you've read a f full sentence. So related to that is always talking to people at the right time. So right people, right time. So there's a right time for any question. Uh, so who is best equipped to give you feedback on your onboarding? This will be obvious by now, but it's the people who've signed up recently. They're the ones who can actually do this. When should you ask them? Well, preferably shortly after they've onboarded. Once they're successful and you don't feel like you're going to risk losing them, that's the right time to talk to them. And there's a few reasons for this. One of them is like a somewhat debatable uh, argument uh, amongst psychologists and uh, neuroscientists, which is about memory decay. So, in general, most people don't dispute that you forget a few things along the way, okay? Uh, a lot of people will argue that memory is infinite, it's there, but you can't recall it, and then there's a big debate about, is it that you forgot it or you simply can't recall it? Like, and there are two different things slightly, but uh, it's not, for, from, our, from our intent and purpose, it's basically the same thing. The way I think about memory and the way a lot of people argue memory is, is that you have recent events and you have long ago events. And you have significant events and you have not so significant events. And most pe actions people take in your product will not be significant in their life, right? It's fighting with the memory of the honeymoon they were on, the guy they just kissed, the lunch they just ate, and then it's like, do you remember clicking a reply button? It's like, no, no, mate, I do not. Uh, so, interesting thing about this is like, I could ask you like, how was the Lean Startup Conference on Saturday, and you'll be able to answer that question with a pretty high degree of resolution. Uh, I could ask you, tell me about your wedding if you got married 20 years ago, and you could probably still have a pretty high degree of resolution. You might have retrofitted a few facts that aren't quite true or whatever, but like, that's okay. For the most part, it'll be relatively good. Um, how can we improve our onboarding? The best time to ask that, because it's not a significant event, is recently. Uh, and the most classic thing you see here is like, when you installed our app last year, do you remember why? And it's like, God, no, archive. Um, so what all that means is we're, we're mostly living in this world in terms of who we want to talk to. The other mistake people make in terms of when is that they batch up. They, like, they don't have a system for generally getting feedback consistently. What they do is they, you know, someone, some project changes, and like, hey, you know what we haven't gotten in a while? Feedback, okay, got it, let's go and get a few thousand responses. Whereas it's actually much more valuable if you have a recurring system of feedback. It's kind of like an early warning system rather than like a sort of archeological exposition. Uh, and what I mean by that is basically like, always be getting feedback on your onboarding. Don't wait until the onboarding project because you know, it, that feedback will highlight things like, hey, this is all getting out of date or you're telling me to click this button and it's not here. Similarly, always be getting feedback on your reports generator or your exit survey or whatever. Next piece is the right place. So there's a right place to have most conversations. If you're going to propose to your, your, or to your girlfriend, I guess, you have options. You could do it on a muni train that's like stuck on Montgomery uh, Street uh, in the middle of like a load of you know, crazy people in their morning commute. People are bumping off you, spilling coffee, and you're like <coughs> uh, You could go to you know, that beautiful garden behind the back of the Eiffel Tower in Paris on a sunny spring day. Uh, quiet is all around you. Doves you know, fly overhead. Uh, there are right times and places to have every conversation. That's generally accepted. So 
oftentimes we get this wrong when we bang out a lot of emails to our customers. You know, so most of us have a version of this in the morning. You're going through your email, you're trying to drive a car, you're trying to drink a coffee, you're also trying to take a phone call, and you get to say, check out our new reports feature. No thanks, that's not right now. We've just launched a new date picker. I don't give a shit. And you're just getting through these things pretty quickly. Because uh, that's what we do in the morning, we get rid of email. That's the first error of anyone's day, basically. And uh, you're just going to be one of them. There's a right, as I said, there's a right time, place, and way to have any conversation. So you're in a restaurant, and you order the house Pinot, and a beautiful gentleman comes along and says, here you go, here's a, your house Pinot. And then seven days later, it's like, dear valued customer, we're hoping to improve our restaurant's offering. We'd love your feedback. Were you in our restaurant recently? Did you have any wine? If so, was it any good? That's like how most of us do product feedback. The wrong time, wrong place, wrong medium, wrong everything, and it's badly targeted. So I get this, and obviously I'm just begging to click archive. Uh, another way to do this is for this dude to say, how's the wine? And she'll say, it's shit. And like, oh, get the feedback at the time, you can do something about it, right? And like just some random examples of this that you'll see. Like, so one good, one bad, right? So we'll start with the bad. This I got recently. This is Bank of America. Tell us what you think about your call on November 16th. Got that five hours ago. Uh, I'm like, sweet. Do I remember that call? Absolutely not. Are they getting a reply? Most likely not. But if they get one, is it going to be a good one? No. <laughs> Alternatively, when I landed here to come into town for Lean Startup, uh, I got this from Expedia. Do you have a good flight? And I was like, yeah. It was actually pretty good. And they're like, okay, cool. Should we put you on, you know, and they followed on to some, like, you know, should we prioritize this airline in the future or whatever? And I was like, no, thanks. But the key point is they got an answer for me because it was the right time to ask me that question, right? That's how product feedback works. Um, as an example of this, like, you, you can talk to your customers in the product, uh, which is like, you know, if, if it's like, you know, you're trying to get somebody to talk to somebody about products, you can show a message inside your product. Here's how you create your first project. Or you can do it outside the product. Only problem is, this one arrives on my phone when I'm out drinking at the Lean Startup party, and I'm like, uh, no, I'm not creating a new project right now, thanks. I'm other things to be doing. Best case scenario, I don't archive it, and I leave it there, and then I archive it tomorrow morning when, I'm, when I realize I've got much busier things to be doing. But there are trade-offs to both of these approaches. Um, conversations in the product, definitely the right time, high probability of reply, high quality, high quality of reply, because they can actually give you real feedback because you're looking at the thing, they're not trying to mentally remember it. Uh, it's in context. It's very little effort for the customer. They don't have to log in and do all this other shit. Uh, but it doesn't work for like inactives. So you can't get feedback from somebody who hasn't been active recently uh, inside your product because they're not there. It's kind of like a hotel trying to get feedback from the people who don't like it uh, by, by putting signs up in the hotel. Uh, it can be ignored during complex workflows. Conversely, like conversations by email, you get this immediate burst. You get everyone at once. You get all people on all devices. But you trade off. You pay that back by saying we have a lower read rate, we have a lower reply rate, unformatted responses, or uh, can arrive simply at the wrong time. But there are trade-offs. And like, so when we talk about the right time, it's really important. Most people just default to mail blast everyone, survey monkey or whatever. Let's just get it all out there and see what comes back. Uh, you know, it's not, not the effective way to get great feedback. Uh, also, be careful with who you target. So like, when, whenever you write the messages, uh, or you start the conversations, or you make the phone calls, 
Uh, don't assume you're always talking to the dude on the left here who's like being a busy active user with like thousands of sessions, paying you 190 bucks a month, but also send it to a dude who hasn't a clue what your product is. You know, it's like, you know, this is the classic, like you saw something on Hacker News or Product Hunt, you, you know, they had a holding page and you entered your email address and then it's like, you know, one year later, it's like, Schniffles just launched a new way to organize your maps. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, so like, always make sure you know who you're talking to you're, and target your content accordingly. So sometimes it makes sense to say, just FYI, you signed up for this true product hunt and here's what it does and here's probably why you liked it. Uh, it's good data. Another point is like, um, don't like, assume. So you can segment and target your message accordingly. So if you, if you assume all users are equal, it's really hard to write this generic dear valued customer message, but it always comes out as dear valued customer, right? If you segment based on inactive people, reintroduce yourself. Explain what your product does. Explain why you're mailing. Uh, try to motivate a reconsideration of your value proposition in the first place. If you're mailing active users, you can cut through all that. You can probably talk to them in the product. You can probably target messages based on what they've done or what they've not, not done or whatever. That's your options. So what do we say? Well, just a few tips on like asking questions. So. Um, First thing to say when you're like, planning out the sort of uh, conversations you want to have with users and the feedback you want to get from them is start with the end in mind. So work out like, you know, don't ask a question that like no matter what they answer, you're not going to do anything about it, right? That's like my pet peeve for surveys is like, you know, on average, how many people do you have in your product? I'm like, uh, seven. They're like, okay. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? Oh, nothing. I'm like, okay, well, great. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> uh, so to that end, it's always useful to ask, uh, to like, avoid dead-end questions. So like, dead-end questions are things like, uh, you know, are you doing this? Or uh, it's like, will you do this? Or how many times have you done this? Or is it true that? Or, now, these are all dead-end because they can be answered with a yes or no. And you won't get much data out of it, right? The definition of a dead-end question is that it can be answered very, very tersely without giving you any context or information that's useful whatsoever. Uh, and there are lots of them. So the opposite of dead-end questions are what we call the 4WH, which is if you ask questions like who uses the product in your company, or what do they use it for, or when do they use it, or where do they use it, or why do they use it, or how do they use it, they're all much more valuable questions to ask because they're open-ended. You will get more information out of them. When you're asking questions, this is my least favorite thing to see. Don't couple independent questions. Like, do you eat healthy and exercise? I do one of those things. Uh, uh, how usable and well-designed is our product? How reliable and fast is our product? You're asking two different questions, and I'm going to answer with, like, you know, it's really, really good. Yeah. And they're like, really good what? I'm like, well, you didn't specify. Uh, or how important is our reports and projections feature? Two different features, dude. You know? um, also, like, provide a meaningful time frame for them. So like, if you say, do you exercise, I think everyone like, will sort of answer yes. But like a better question actually hits that reality. It's like in the past week, like how many times have you exercised? In the past week, how did you think about exercise? In the past week, what are your plans for exercise in the past week? Uh, like they're actually what gets to reality, basically. Uh, or you know, so like it also helps people avoid aspirational stuff because you're focused on reality, you focus on recent real, re recent realistic behavior. Uh, ensure the user feels qualified to answer. You'll often get people who think that you know. By asking them a question, you're asking them to be a product manager or a designer. And like, that's what you need. You, you always want to avoid that. Like, it's much fairer to say, like, in your opinion, or like, as a user of our product, you know, like, always just make sure that they realize, shit, I am actually the person you want to talk to. And it is just my opinion you want. Got it. I'll, I'll give you what, what you want. 
Um, avoid hypotheticals, like what would it take for you to do, or like if a friend invited you, or if it cost less than 49 bucks, or any of those things. They're all speculative behavior. No one can actually answer that question. You're asking them to simulate an alternate reality and live themselves in that alternate reality. They're going to give you the answer that they think makes them look good or makes you happy, but neither of those are actually how they behave. Okay? Like, and you, there are numerous ways uh, you can test that out, either with like, your friends or partners or users. Um, and lastly, act on the feedback. So one piece I have to uh, stress a lot is the plural of anecdote it's often cool to say the plural of anecdote is not data. And like, that's kind of like the, the meme of the metrics generation. That it, and it is true. But the plural of anecdote is definitely hypothesis. Hypothesis. Uh, and the reason that's important is that like, if you get like eight people telling you, like, hey, your reports feature is shit, you're like, OK, one sort of natural gut reaction as a founder, as product manager, designer, is like, shit, we need to fix this. Let's go and do this. But, you have to kind of check yourself and go, like, well, we do have 104,000 daily active users. This is eight. It does not mean that, like, you know, that the whole world is burning down. It's very, very easy to sort of fool yourself to think that you're in the category on the left. Everyone's asking for this, whereas in reality, you're, uh, you're actually in the category on the right. Like, there could be four of, there could be much bigger issues, or there could be just as, like, many equally irrelevant issues. Uh, so whenever you get something like that, you consider it a hypothesis, you try to prove it, and you try to prove it by actually then going and asking the right users the right questions in the right time and the right place. And you sort of gauge the level of interest in this change that you're, that's being demanded by these four in this case. And if that makes sense, then you can consider starting to design a test against it. But you do not simply let, like, let an anecdote bypass you know, what is otherwise considered good product management, such as research if this thing actually matters or not. Um, similarly, like, uh, another thing I see uh, as a mistake a lot, specifically in people who are in the MVP phase, is if monetization is important, which, you know, P.S., it probably should be these days, uh, you should distinguish free from paid feedback. And what a recurring pattern I've seen time and time again is that, like, free users ask for more, more and new and more and new. They're like, I'm paying you zero, but I, I feel like that's not great value, you know? Uh, so they'll ask for more. Like, if you, you know, I might even upgrade if you throw in a few more features. <laughs> uh, whereas paying users ask for better, because they already have a contract with you. You're delivering them value, and what they want to see is the improvement along those trajectories. And it's really important that you're, whenever you get all this feedback, you have to be able to distinguish it and just make sure that you're, not being, like, that you're not disappointing a load of paying customers to chase the speculated values of a load of freeloaders or free users or freemium users or whatever you want to call them. Um, and when you get these requests, it's really important that Jason Fries from, 30, uh, from Basecamp said this, uh, act not on the request of your user, but act on their behalf. Uh, the related point to like paraphrase Confucius is like that customers will often point us to the moon and we'll examine their fingers and then we'll be like, oh, oh right, got it, we guys, we need to ship a minimum viable finger. Okay, and off we go. Whereas they're actually showing us what they really wanted uh, and we were ignoring that, looking for whatever the shortest term thing we could do is. So, you know, and the classic one here, like to go Henry Ford on us for a second, is like the, you know, are you still working on a faster horse? You're like, yes, here's your faster horse, here's the prototype, check it out, will this be ready in Q2? But when somebody asks you for a faster horse or a better reports feature or a way to let all your team be uh, collaborative, you have to work out, well, what, when someone says, I want a faster horse, what they're saying is, like, speed is important to me. You're like, got it. OK, you're looking for transport, you're looking for speed. Anything else important? Well, reliability, uh, stamina, endurance. OK, so you want to be able to travel large distances. And you start to form a set of requirements for your product. 
from this conversation. You iterate and improve along the requirements, not along the customer's proposed solution, because they're not your designer, or at least I hope they're not. Um, so you iterate and improve along what they've stated, uh, and you've, you've tested this by talking to a lot of users. But you, talk, you look, listen to what they've stated that matters to them, and you improve and you ship that. And that will get you a lot closer to product market fit. That is my hypothesis. I'm Des Trainer. I'm Des Trainer on Twitter. If you want these slides, I'm happy to send them to you. Just mail des-slides at intercom.io. My actual address is des at intercom, but it's best to make my inbox a little bit saner to <laughs> use dash slides. Uh, if you're interested in my products, it's intercom. I'm, I'm one of the co-founders. And you can find more links there. The ideas are at the blog. Hope this was useful. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Des, for that. I actually got a couple of questions from the audience and thought myself, where do we get this slide deck? <laughs> because there are so many specific tips that I know even thinking about my own work, I was thinking, like, I want to like, look at this again and again. Um, so thank you for offering that. Um, and all videos of all talks will be up eventually, so you can watch this again and go through the slide deck and all of that again. Um, we only have a couple of minutes for questions, but I just wanted to ask a couple that um, you all have read, there we go, that you all have um, submitted and maybe still can if the URL goes up again. Um, but one question was, when you're doing these customer interviews and you, asked, you gave a lot of really specific tips, um, what do you do about the fact that people don't often know why they do the things that they do. It, it, you know, it's true that people don't know why, the things that it, uh, why, why they do a lot of what they do. Uh, anyone who's ever made a mistake can certainly testify to that. But you get them to describe the environment under which the decision was made. Uh, so if someone would say, hey, I signed up for your product, but I really don't know why. And you're like, all right, well, cool. Well, let's talk about that day. Like, when was it? Like, and, you know, and they're like, oh, I don't know. It was like a couple of weeks ago. Cause always. If you're talking to the right people, the memory will be pretty rich of everything around it. So you're not talking to me about seven months ago. So it's like, well, tell me about your Wednesday. You signed up pretty early in the morning. And they're like, oh, well, I come in, I, you know, first thing I do is just goof around on product hunt. And you're like, okay, cool. And do you remember what the description was? And they're like, yeah, it said something about time tracking. You're like, okay, cool. And did you need to track time? And they might, they might, they'll be like, no, but it's something that's frustrating about my development team is that they can't estimate properly. And you're like, okay, right. But like, I think. You know, the point that people don't know is valid. They can describe a lot of circumstances that will let you infer a lot of logic and reason, and you can push that back on them and see if it's true. So like, well, if they describe an environment uh, that created an action, such as a cancel or a sign up or like using a feature or not using a feature, if you take that, uh, get, get it pretty rich so you know everything else that was going on in their company or in their life or whatever at the time, so you can, and I, by that I mean like, you know, are you under pressure in projects? Is that why you signed up for a project management tool? Get real good resolution on that, and then replay it against them. So, like, remind, like, recreate that circumstance. Remind them, like, rebuild all that state for them, and then ask them, what are they thinking? Like, oh, so does this product make sense to you? Then you can start to actually infer. Well, hang on. Obviously, like, you know, you signed up for this reason, and that reason's changed. You're actually just having a bad day, or it'll be something like, right, 
you signed up because you thought that we do project visualization, but we don't, I understand. So that's why it cancels. In which case, you can scrub that and not consider it like a failed user or whatever. But I mean, I think the key point is, look for the circumstances, not the reason out of the user. So a real like super direct question, like you know, why are you here on the stage, is like, you know, it's like, geez, I don't know. Well, I got offered a chance to speak at Lean Startup. But like, if you actually say, well, we're, what are we doing when the mail is on? Oh, well, we're trying to market the product and we thought it'd be a good way to, you know, you can start to get all these sort of things a little bit richer. So that, that's basically my best answer to that. Okay, great, thank you. And um, looking for a short answer to this next one, because we got so many specific tips on um, how to do, I just wanted to ask, you know, what's your experience that really made you come up, you know, have all of this specific expertise and know how to share it? Like, can you share a, a story with us about a deep learning period that you had? Yeah, so uh, we built Intercom to solve a part of this problem. Uh, basically, in a nutshell, our previous product, we had, had like thousands of users, we had no clue who they were or what they were doing. So we used to do all, make all the mistakes I just described. We'd like bulk survey, talk to counselors, yesterday signups, the whole lot. Got no act actionable feedback. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be useful if we could actually talk to the right people and, uh, and say the right things at the right time? And one, uh, you know, there's so many realizations, but like we were shipping this feature and we were getting feedback. And I remember like it was all coming in, like, but it was mostly was, none of it was valuable. And I was like, hang on, none of these guys have even used the damn thing yet. So, <laughs> so it, it became, then became obvious that like one of the reasons, one of the things that cripples startups and customer conversations is inability to talk to the right people. And that was the realization we had, which is what led to the genesis of Intercom. Yeah, great. All right, well, thank you very much.